As we turn our attention to the Word of God, let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Would you pray with me? God, as the choir just led us, we do need you at every moment, and I'm very aware of my need for you now, but it's more than just me. We all need you, because whether it's just me proclaiming the Word or us hearing it, we're all actually hearers of the Word, and we need for your Spirit to be our teacher to guarantee and to prosper the success of your word for your glory, to exalt the name of Jesus, to proclaim his kingdom and his righteousness. And so, Father, illumine our minds and our hearts. Open them that we would come under your word and under your teaching. By the Spirit, apply the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to not only our individual lives, but our corporate life as well, to our church, that we would learn how to minister. We pray, Father, that you would bless this time in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. We are finishing chapter 1 this morning, and we are at Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. So let's turn our attention to the word of God. It says here, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing, for your cleansing, what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, let's remember Mark's purpose in writing his gospel. He said back in chapter 1, verse 1, he said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what Mark is doing in these 16 chapters of his narrative is he is giving us a true account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus first appeared on the scene, He began to proclaim the gospel, and what he said was the content of the gospel. He said, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So let's remember what Jesus has come to do. He's come to inaugurate, to launch the rule and the reign, the kingdom of God, the sovereign expression of his gracious will in the lives of people. And as we've been going through chapter 1 He has been demonstrating that he reigns. In other words, extending his grace in both word and deed. I love the word that Vic read earlier from Psalm 103 that says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And here in Jesus' ministry, we get to see exactly what that looks like. Kind of at the practical ground base level, so to speak. Jesus is showing us what ministry looks like. 
So if we want to do ministry Jesus' way, not our way, not Spruce Creek's way, not Jeff's way, not the elder's way, but Jesus' way, we need to look at how he did ministry, how Jesus engaged in kingdom ministry. And what we see is that there are three facets to Jesus' ministry, three facets that we need to pay attention to and embody in our lives, both individually and corporately. And those three things are to be prepared in prayer, his purpose in preaching, and the power of pity. In other words, his ministry was one of prayer, one of preaching, and one of pity or compassion. Another way of putting it, prayer, word, and deed. Those were the three aspects of Jesus' ministry. Look at the beginning of the passage, verse 35. Jesus' life of prayer. Very, it says, and rising very early in the morning. Now, by the way, the original there is closer to the middle of the night. So in other words, how many of us were sleeping at 3 a.m.? Or I could ask, how many of us wanted to be sleeping at 3 a.m.? Even if you weren't sleeping at 3 a.m., I bet you you wanted to be sleeping at 3 a.m. Jesus didn't want to sleep at 3 a.m. It says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, I want us to take this in for a second because this is absolutely amazing. Because do you see what's going on here before? Because let's, let's recall Jesus' day before. Notice it says, rising early in the morning. What happened the day before? We actually looked at this last week on the Sabbath day. What did Jesus do? He began to teach in the synagogues. So far, so good. And what happens? A man with an unclean spirit, in other words, demon-possessed, comes before him, and Jesus is engaged in spiritual conflict. Jesus is engaged in spiritual battle. And what does he do? He muzzles, he silences, he rebukes the demon, he exercises the demon, and the demon shrieking, revulsing, convulsing, comes out of him. And then you think Jesus' day is over? No, he goes, he's thinking, okay, it's time for dinner at Simon's house. I wonder if the football game's on. We're done ministry, we're going to go, and we're going to, you know, have dinner at... Nope. Simon's mother-in-law and is ill. So what does he do? As the old saying goes, happy wife, happy life. You know, Simon's probably like, Jesus, I got something for you to do. My mom-in-law, she's sick. Jesus goes, stretches out his hand, takes her hand, and heals her. Jesus, in other words, had a pretty busy day, didn't he? Pretty stressed. And then the end of that text comes out and says the whole city, and I don't know if Mark is speaking with hyperbole or not, but it says the whole city is clamoring at the door to get his attention. So take a look at this. He's stressed. He's busy. Crazy busy day. Everybody wants to see him. Everybody wants a piece of him. What do you do when you're that busy? I know what my, I'm only preaching two sermons today. Not really that big a deal. I'm going to go home and watch football. And yes, the Giants come on at one o'clock. <laughs> Jesus, on the other hand, look at his life. Everybody clamoring for him. The busier Jesus gets, the earlier he rises in prayer. The more people are clamoring, demanding of him, scratching and clawing to get his attention, the more, what does he do? He withdraws to a lonely place, a solitary place, a desolate place to seek communion with God. Tim Keller calls it the richness of Jesus' interior life with God. How is your interior life with God? See, do you see this? Look at this in the flow of the narrative. 
Because as the text goes on, Jesus is about to proceed with the ministry of the word and then the ministry of mercy or the ministry of deed. He's about to do ministry in word and in deed. And what do we learn here? That word and prayer, ministry and prayer must absolutely go together. They're indispensable. Some years ago, Shane and I were involved in a ministry here that was called kit training, kingdom intercessory training. And the materials were developed by a PCA man. His name was Archie Parrish. And he described the word and prayer as two wings on an airplane. And he said, just like a plane, you need both wings in order to fly. You wouldn't want to go on a plane with just one wing now, would you? I don't know about you all, but the next time I fly, if I walk into the airport and here's the Delta attendant and they're saying, hey, there's our plane. I look out and see one wing. I'm not asking them when they're getting the other wing fixed. I'm turning around and finding another plane. Do you realize this is what the ministry and the word of word and prayer are like? Just like it would be absolutely disastrous. You literally crash and burn to get on a plane with one wing. Do you believe you'd crash and burn if you go into the ministry of the word without prayer? Do you believe, do you really believe that you can go through your life? See, I've got to speak to us who love the word of God, and I'm not telling us love the word of God less. What I'm telling us is that as we take in the information, as we take, as the word gives us the content, prayer gives us the power. Content without power accomplishes nothing. The application here is very simple. There is no public power without private prayer. And there's no public power without private power. And public power is not just simply doing what I do as pastor or what the elders do or what Sunday school teachers do. Our entire public life consists of our entire life ministering to our husband or wife, to our children or grandchildren, at our workplace, in our neighborhood, every public interaction. There is no public power without private power. I want you to notice something else. The text says that Jesus went out to a desolate place to pray. That is the same Greek word that he used early on in chapter 1 to describe the wilderness or the desert. See, I'm afraid this is so convicting to me because Jesus' prayer life is so different from my own. Yes, I pray, but here's how I pray. I get my cup of coffee. I look out over my window with a nice view. I like the ambiance. Reminds me of the creation of God. It's so nice. I'm comfortable, and then I pray. What does Jesus do? He purposely rises when it's uncomfortable, and he goes to the place where he was confronted by Satan, tempting him 40 days in the desert. He goes purposely to a place of loneliness, aridness, desert. He goes to a place, as one commentator put it, he says, so Jesus withdraws from people in order to return to an area which has the character of the wilderness where he encountered Satan and sustained temptation. The same commentator gives us the insight that he says, there are three times in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark, where Mark tells us Jesus prayed. Here in chapter 1, verse 35, it's towards the beginning. Jesus is beginning to launch his mission and ministry. Later in chapter 6, verse 46, kind of in the middle of his ministry, right after he fed the 5,000, says he withdrew and prayed. And later on, towards the climax, when he's moving towards the cross, chapter 14, you have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
here towards the end of his ministry. And Bill Lane, the commentator on this, says each one of these has the character of a critical moment. And he says the setting for each is night and solitude. Each recalls the situation of the wilderness where Jesus confronts the temptation of Satan. And Jesus here is sustained by help from God through prayer. At each juncture, Jesus is renewed in his commitment to fulfilling the will of God and the mission of God. And what is the will and mission of God for Jesus? It is taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve on behalf of his people. Think about this. This is absolutely amazing. If Jesus, the Son of God, remember what Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If Jesus, the righteous one, the perfect one, the sinless one, completely whole, completely devoted to the will and plan of God, his heart never divided, his heart always united with pursuing and loving God and loving people, if he needed to nurture his interior life with God, how much more do we, weak, flawed, sinful, self-centered, forgetful people, need to nurture our interior life with God? And just before I move on to the next point, let me press this on just a bit more. Tim Keller makes the point here that we don't really see a lot of the content of prayer in this particular passage, but he says what we learn here is the dynamic core of what prayer really is. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he takes us to Mark chapter 14, where he says, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begins his prayer in verse 36 with the words, Abba, Father. The very first words out of his mouth are, Abba, Father. And when the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, what is the very first words that Jesus says for them to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. And Tim Keller writes, he says, the essence of prayer is not, give us this day our daily stuff. He says, that doesn't come out first, does it? He says, the essence of prayer is not forgive us our wrongdoing. He says, as important as that is, and as it will come, it doesn't come first. He writes, what comes first? He says, orientation. We have to orient ourselves to communion with God. The essence of prayer is searing the senses of the mind and heart with the white-hot fact that in Christ, the cosmic Lord of the universe has become your Father. He says that's the essence of prayer. That the thing on which everything else is based is the fact that the infinite, absolute, transcendent power has been gentled for you. It says, in prayer, Jesus goes back to this every day, and he sears his heart with it. He inflames his mind, his understanding, his will. All of his senses are seared with the fact of communion and intimacy with God. He nurtures that. That's the orientation of his prayer life, is to remember that God is his Abba. Now, if Jesus needs that, how much more do we At our men's breakfast last week, I so appreciated in Andrew's devotional, he was taking us back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, when God makes man in his own image, male and female, he created them. He reminded us that that word in that particular place used for male is not the word Adam, which is the word used for humanity in general, but it's a particular Hebrew word that means remembering one. Do you know why we have to come to the Word all the time? Do you know why we need prayer for preparation? Do you know why we need to come to the sacraments? And we need to come to the sacraments often and always because we're forgetful ones. Remembering and forgetting in the Bible is not like, ooh, 
Did I remember where I put my car keys? Remembering is a willful suppression of the truth. And the gravitational pull of our hearts is to suppress the truth of God. And remembering is a renewal in the gospel and kingdom realities of the truth of Jesus Christ. And there is not too often that you need to remember. We need to remember all the time. Jesus needed to remember. Why did Jesus sear into his senses? Hearing, smelling, seeing, feeling, all of him. The orientation of communion and nurturing his soul with God so that he could fulfill his mission of doing the will of God. Ministry is about prayer. Prayer is the ministry. Do we truly prepare ourselves with prayer? Does that describe our ministry? But look, keep going through the text because notice what happens next. Jesus is out praying and it says Simon and the others, the others more than likely is Brother Andrew and James and John, the first disciples that were called, they come looking for him. And I think it's probably, the text kind of hints at this, they come looking for him along the idea and the lines of rebuke because what do they say? Everyone's searching for you. So in other words, and you could just picture kind of how they'd be thinking. What happened the night before? We got exorcisms, we got healings, the whole city's clamoring at the door, everybody's coming. Jesus, what are you doing wasting your time out here by yourself? Look at this, the church is full, it's packed, let's go, we need you. And what does Jesus do? Verse 37, Jesus responds. He says, let's go on, let's leave this place, let's go to the next towns, why that I may preach there also? For that is why I came out. His purpose of preaching, his purpose of proclamation. And again, this is amazing. Because look, they come out and they rebuke Jesus. Why are you wasting your time? And Jesus responds, bringing out their misunderstanding, their failure to get his mission, to get what he's all about. Exorcisms, healing, all manifest, all demonstrate, all put on display the realities of the gracious expression of God's sovereign will. But it's only the ministry of the word that explains its meaning and significance. You need to have the ministry of the word. See, without the word, you can do what? You misinterpret the actions of God. You can have all the actions of God. That's exorcisms, healing, all of this. You need the word to say, this is what it means. This is what it's all about. Because without the word, without the special revelation of God to interpret the meaning of God's actions, it is too easy to misunderstand. So Jesus preaches, and notice what you have here, and we're going to see this as we go on to our next point. Jesus preaches and he heals. His ministry is one of word and action, word and deed. His preaching ministry proclaims the gospel of the kingdom and confronts us. with the necessity of a response. It makes a claim upon our lives. So you absolutely need the ministry of the word. It's the only way you're going to get the realities of the gospel. It is only through the ministry of the word that we are and that we learn, to use Jack Miller's words, more flawed and sinful than we could ever dare believe. Remember Jack Miller's words? Cheer up. I have good news for you. You're a whole lot worse than you think. See, it's the ministry of the word that tells you that. But at the same time, it's the ministry of the word that tells us you're more loved, delighted in, 
cared for, adopted, secured, rejoiced over, sung and danced over than you dare, ever dared believe. As Jack Miller would say, cheer up. You are more loved and secured than you would ever to dream or imagine. It's the word of God that tells you that. Now remember I said the theme of this sermon, we're looking at how to do ministry, and the theme of this sermon is it's a both and. See, only the ministry of the word tells you that. The ministry of the word tells you gospel realities, and the ministry of, the, of deed shows you gospel realities. The ministry of deed backs up and gives you the credibility of the ministry of the word. Without word, you misinterpret the deed. Without deed, the word looks empty and pale. You need absolutely to have both, like two wings on a plane with word on prayer, two wings on a plane, word and deed. You give the word and then you demonstrate its truthfulness. I didn't say you make it truthful. It's always truthful. What you do is you showcase its truthfulness. You put on display its truthfulness by your love in action. And Jesus shows us this in the account here with the leper and the power of pity. Verse 40 we read, And a leper came to him. So as he's in the next town, as he's proclaiming the word of God, a leper comes to him, imploring him, kneeling, says to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now let's give a little bit of background here, because we need to understand the desperation of this man's situation. Again, Bill Lane says, any man who was identified as a leper was reduced to a most pitiful state of existence. In the context of Old Testament law, we read in Leviticus 13, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, And let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Commentators remind us that leprosy in those days, while going through a wide variety of skin disease, was not by any means solely a disease. It was a total condition, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual. Physically, of course, to be a leper meant you were literally falling apart. It was a skin disease, so it was literally eating you alive. You were falling apart. But pain and misery were left with the fact that socially you were a pariah. You were contagious, and so you were not allowed to get anywhere near the inhabited places. Thus, Leviticus says, you've got to live away from the community. You've got to live outside the camp. You had to stay in the lonely places. You basically had to stay in the desert, in the wilderness. Absolute emotional isolation from human community. And not only that, it was a situation of total and complete exile and spiritual exile as well. If you came into, for example, a synagogue service, as you were allowed to do, you could come and you could worship and come to the synagogue service but only if a screen was provided to isolate them from the rest of the congregation so that you'd be completely cut off. Nobody could touch you. Nobody could come near you. Nobody could you enter in for a second, not only the physical pain, but the emotional shame and alienation, completely cut off from connection 
that this man was in. And how does Jesus respond? The text tells us, moved with pity. And we think of pity, and pity is not nearly as strong. I used it because that's what the translation, and it's a good enough translation, but it doesn't convey the force and the depth of this word. Because moved with pity, the Greek indicates not only compassion, but it's a feeling from the bowels, from the depths of, the be- of being, that includes entering into a condition so strong that you even feel a sense of indignation, a sense of indignation at the ravages of the fall, the depths and the ravages of disease, of death, of alienation, of exile. Jesus is here. First John chapter 3 tells us that Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. Jesus here is moved with such a, such a sense of indignation because he is beginning, he is launching the beginning of destroying the devil's work. And he's moved with pity in this way so that from the depths of his being with love and compassion, from his bowels he's moved by our condition our objective condition, because this is what the gospel tells us, that we are apart from Jesus. We are alienated. We are in exile. We are alone. We are cut off. And what does he do? He does two things. He gives first a gesture, and then he makes a pronouncement. The gesture is he stretches out his hand and touches the man. Now, we need to be utterly shocked by this. Because, again, from the perspective, what Bill Lane commenting on this says is that from the perspective of Jesus' relationship to Old Testament law, to the cultic and ritual system, it indicated that he did not hesitate to act in violation of its regulations when the situation demanded. In other words, the ceremonial law gives place and gives way to to the law of love when the two come into collision. Do you know what the implications of that are mean? Mean? When you have the rules and you have love, love wins 1,000% of the time. Jesus had the rules. Do you know what the rules said here? The rules said, don't get near that man. He's got to be yelling, unclean, unclean. So first of all, this man is breaking the rules when he comes up imploring him. And of course he is. He's desperate for Jesus. You know why I think Jesus is not real to us? Oh, we believe in him, but he's not real in every one of our interactions. And we don't see his power because we're not desperate people. If we were desperate, we'd implore him to be real in our lives. And do you know how Jesus would respond? He would reach out and touch us. Jesus is drawn to desperation. Jesus is attracted to brokenness. What does Psalm 34 say? The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and draws near to the crushed in spirit. Jesus sees people who are afflicted and oppressed, and he moves towards them. What do we do with the lepers? We hide ourselves. We run away. When the rules meet love, love wins every time. And then the proclamation, the pronouncement is simple. And of course it's simple. It comes from Jesus. He says, I will be clean. How simple is that? As we close and prepare to go to the Lord's table, let me just try to make a couple of applications here, applying this to ourselves, first of all, corporately as a church, and then individually as well. Remember I said the theme of this is, this is how Jesus is showing how he does ministry, because that's what he's doing. He's doing ministry. 
Ministry is bathed and saturated in prayer. He's nurturing his interior life communion with God. It's the ministry of the word that explains so that the gospel becomes clear, the depth understanding of the gospel. So you've got a preaching proclamation ministry. And then you have a ministry of social action and justice and mercy and deed where the implications of the gospel are moving out to meet a holistic sense of needs. Jesus is ministering in prayer, in word, and in deed. What kind of church would we have to be if we're going to embody the ministry that Jesus says? Tim Keller makes the point, he says that there is along the spectrum, if you look at a continuum, he says there's a continuum of line kind of in terms of churches, and he calls one on one side, the far one side, he calls them sectarian or fundamentalist, separatist churches, And he says, on the far, on the other side, are more along the lines of mainline or mainstream churches. And he's being general here. But he says this, and I'm quoting, he says, sectarian legalistic churches put lots of emphasis on conversion because they want to grow their tribe. But they put almost no emphasis on pouring yourself out to meet the social, physical, and economic needs of the whole community. He says, then if you look on the other side of the spectrum of mainline or mainstream kinds of churches, he says they put all their emphasis on doing good, doing good deeds, helping people, but they would never call anybody to repent. They would never call anybody sinners, and they would never tell anybody of their need to convert. So on the one hand, you have churches who do evangelism without getting involved in people's lives, and on the other hand, churches that do good deeds, but never challenge anybody to repent and convert. Dr. Keller goes on, he says that the gospel, though, produces people who, on the one hand, don't despise the world, and on the other hand, don't just reflect or mirror the world, but instead they love the world. They're different, they're set apart, they're a light to the world, but they love the world because Jesus, as utterly different as he was, died for his enemies. He says any church that is following Jesus is just not, he says it's not an either or of conversion or social justice. It is a both and. He says, in fact, in some ways, a church that is following Jesus is going to absolutely surpass and exceed evangelistically the ability of the sectarian church because of the attractiveness of the deeds. Remember what I said earlier. The ministry of the word is backed up, is showcased, is displayed, is given its credibility. Its truth is there no matter what. But it's made credible by the quality of our love for one another and for the world. How do we become a church like that? A both-and church. Not an either-or church. A both-and church. We said that the leper was exiled, alienated in every dimension of his life, physically, spiritually, culturally, socially, totally cut off. It's what is meant to be in exile. But if we look at the gospel, in Hebrews we read, Hebrews chapter 13 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
How do we be a church like that? First, you have to see that Jesus was exiled so that you could come in. That on the cross, Jesus didn't just bear physical pain. Yes, the physical pain was agony, but that was not the only kind of suffering. He suffered complete exile, complete shame, complete cut, being cut off from the life of God. He completely was exiled, alienated, went to the utter desolate place so that we could come in. So then Hebrew says, therefore, to the degree that we're going to understand that he did that for us, we now go to him outside the camp, bearing to the world. See, we live the cross before the world. Our lives become conformed to the pattern of the cross. What was the pattern of the cross? Pour yourself out, sacrifice, and give yourself in order to enter into the needs of others. It was not hide yourself and shelter yourself and shut yourself off so that nobody can get to you. And maybe if they happen to come in, we'll be welcoming and let them in. No, it was go pour yourself out, go outside the camp, enter into their suffering, bearing yourselves individually and corporately, go outside the camp, doing ministry as Jesus did. And we will only do that to the degree. It almost comes back full circle to the degree that in prayer we are appropriating the power of the gospel of God, that we are appropriating the power seeing that Jesus did that for us. That Jesus accomplishes first what he commands. See, there's not a legalistic, bald command, go do this. You need to see that Jesus accomplishes this for you. He went outside the camp. He took your exile, your alienation, your loneliness, your totally being cut off, your shame, he took upon himself. He bore that upon himself. Are you nurturing that in prayer for yourself? When you go to the Lord's Supper, are you asking the Lord by his spirit to sear into your senses, not just the content, but to sear into all of you the reality that he's your tender, gentle, compassionate, holy, righteous, just, heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, continue to show us Jesus, that we would see Jesus going into exile for us, that we would really understand that, that he went outside the camp, he completely entered our alienated, exiled condition being cut off physically, being cut off spiritually, being cut off emotionally so that we could come in, that he met all of our needs because he was moved with pity for us. Forgive us that we forget. Forgive us that we willfully forget Jesus' compassion for us. And I think we do that because I think we know deep down that if we were to let your grace truly penetrate us, that there is nothing you couldn't ask of us. And so I think we're really deep down afraid of your grace. We're afraid to let your grace penetrate and move us. We're afraid to have your grace truly impact us. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would change us, that you would prosper the ministry of your word. Holy Spirit, that you would come and apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.